Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. In this episode, it feels like you can't walk into a brewery without tripping over a barrel-aged stout. But barrels are a hard bit of kit to maintain at the homebrew level. So I'm talking with Desi Hall of the Barrel Mill about their barrels, and more importantly for us, barrel alternatives. Sit back, we're getting woody. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Get ready. This year's Learn to Homebrew Day is going to be a smash. Join the celebration on Saturday, November 4th by brewing a recommended smash beer. These recipes use a single malt and single hop and are perfect for experienced and beginning homebrewers. For the official Learn to Homebrew Day recipes, brewing tutorials, and a free brewing book, visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for event and book offer details. When we've talked to a lot of retailers, there was a lot of people who were like, oh, you know, the early part of COVID was actually great for us because we were selling like gangbusters. Yeah. And I did not get a chance to see that bump. Um, We closed up. So this is what's really funny is I closed the retail store, but in town, like I was, we're small enough of a town where I knew a lot of customers personally so those guys could just call me so when we originally closed up the retail store i said hey i don't know what's going to happen i am continuing to order stuff i'll do um you place an order with me and i'll make an arrangement for you to pick it up so i was doing that for a while and i thought i'd see a little bit of pump but man not even people reaching out is what was wild for our area. And then I would talk to a lot of the other guys that were in the uh, homebrew store connection. Um, there's like the Facebook group. And a lot of those guys were saying like, no, we've been killing it. We got really good push at the beginning of the pandemic. Everybody's stuck at home. So they're brewing like crazy. And I kind of thought I would get the same thing, which was why I said, you know, let's keep doing orders. Let's keep doing stuff. Um, while the store is closed and if it's worth it then we'll just reopen the store but yeah we just didn't get enough well and so now you're off 
running around trying to sell people on the power of wood. Yeah, exactly. You know, and some days it's really, really easy to sell. Other days it's, uh, people think I'm selling snake oil. <laughs> well, okay. So since we're starting to talk about wood, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to everybody? All right. So, uh, my name is Desi Hall. I work for the barrel mill, um, small cooperage out of central Minnesota. Um, and we make, uh, oak barrels, American oak barrels. Um, and we're, uh, basically in the, uh, premium oak barrel uh, category. And then we also make an oak alternative, the infusion spiral. All right. So for those of us who are not in the business, when you say the premium oak barrel uh, category, I hadn't been aware that there were differences between premium and not premium. Um, so yeah, that kind of falls into the same thing of, of I could describe it better as uh, mass produced and then um, more like handmade. So we call our cooperage, we're a machine assisted handmade uh, barrel cooperage, mm -hmm. whereas some of the other producers, they'll make one barrel size. They use machinery to pump them out and they can pump out a thousand barrels a month or, or even more than that. And we can do, let's say, 50,000 barrels a year, I think is what we're doing right now. So hmm. there's, there's cooperages out there that make one barrel size and they can put out what we put out in a year. They put it out in a month. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's that, that whole industrialization thing, right? When we talk about like, you know, craft breweries and what they make in a year. And then you go and you look at like Anheuser-Busch does that in less than a day, you know, per exactly. brewery. <laughs> Yep, exactly. And so our barrels, know, being known as a premium barrel, people buy our barrels because our barrels are known when they show up, they unwrap one, they fill them with whatever juice they're going to put into it, and our barrels are known to not leak one drop. Where the typical standard commercial barrel, let's call it a production barrel, might take a little while for that barrel to fully seal up, or those people using those barrels know that they have to fill them uh, with some other solution before they put their spirits into it mm -hmm. because they need to pre-swell that barrel before they put their product into it. Otherwise, they're going to lose quite a bit. So when people buy our barrel, it's a little more expensive, but they know that they can fill that barrel and not have to worry about losing any product. Um, and we kind of take that same approach to making our barrel alternative, the infusion spiral, uh, we know that once somebody puts that into their product, the result of it is going to be pretty much good every time. Okay. Well, and so how did you get into the barrel game from being a homebrew shop owner to to a barrel seller? Yeah. And so that's actually like a really wild story um, on one hand, but lucky, like a story of luck on the other. Um, I came from the hospitality world. I was a chef for about 20 years before I got into uh, the home brewing, or maybe 17 years before and another three years running together. Um, <clears throat> so coming from cooking, that's what got me originally into home brewing. So then um, just like cooking is so similar to brewing as in like how the flavors when you mix them together can create something completely different or just changing temperature and time can make completely different products. So I was intrigued um, by home brewing and craft beer. Uh, I started doing a lot of like beer dinners when I was a chef and that's what originally introduced me to the craft beer because it's like, oh, can you make some meals to pair with these beers that we're going to bring in from 
such and such brewery, let's say. Um, so starting there, getting to drink a lot of craft, got my interest going. Next thing you know, I'm home brewing craft. Um, and I'd say from the time I made my first beer to the time I opened my store, maybe four years in between there, I went from zero to 60 hard. Um, I think I was brewing like three batches of beer a month um, on average by the time I got to open in the homebrew store. I love how common that that story is. Like those of us who have been in this game for a good long while, uh, it seems like a lot of us share that same sort of thing. Well, you know, I started brewing. The next thing I know is brewing all the time. I went nuts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it was all out zero to 60. Yeah, I like, I brewed my first beer. The first beer I ever brewed, I brewed with another friend that was already into it. So he kind of introduced me to it. Then I bought my first setup. And I think it was like the third batch of beer I brewed on my own. I was like bottling it. And I go, I hate bottling. And if I have to continue bottling, I'm probably going to stop home brewing. So by the fourth batch of beer, I had already bought all the stuff for kegging and doing the kegerator. And I was all grain brewing by like my sixth batch of beer. So like five batches brewed from extract. And then I was like, ah, this isn't fancy enough, or I don't have enough control of all the ingredients. I got to go to the next step. So jumped into the all grain, jumped into kegging right away. Um, and then just fell head over heels for, um, home brewing in general. So then in 2016, uh, I quit my job running a kitchen here in the town I live in, and we uh, opened the homebrew store. Let's see, I quit my job the 1st of September, and we were open at the end of November. Oh, wow. So you you went pretty quick. Yeah, I decided I was going to do it, and I don't like a lot of idle time. So uh, once I dove in, I, did, I went after it like a full-time job. You know, and For me, I had been a chef. So a full-time job to me was 60 to 80 hours a week. So I spent 60 to 80 hours a week researching, planning, writing the business plan, getting everything put together to do the homebrew store. And, uh, yeah, we opened our doors on, it was a week before Black Friday. Uh, there you go. Yeah. See, now, by the way, that 68 hours that you just described in the kitchen, that is the reason why I ran away from kitchens as fast as I could. Yeah. That's tough. Oh, it is. It's brutal. You know, and I spent a lot of time doing it. Um, and when we had our, our small kids now, when I had my, my oldest, I still work kitchens for a long time. But when we, when I had my second son, I said, ah, I'm not going to take that much time away from my family anymore. Let's give some more time to the family. So we bounced over to, uh, a different way to take all my time from the family. <laughs> and I opened a retail store. <laughs> you know, that's what I was thinking in the background. I'm going, Wait, I don't think opening up your own business is a good way to spend more time with your family. You know, I did get to spend more time with my kids because I ended up putting in like a little play area for my kids in the store because nice. that was like after school or like after daycare would close. I was like, all right, whatever, I'm going to go pick them up and they can just come back here and hang out with me. Their mom's in sales not as well. So like she worked long days, some hours or up and down hectic. So I would just be like, they can be in the store. So my kids grew up around home brewing and uh my eight-year-old probably could brew some batches with the best of them there you go get the eight-year-old signed up and uh, put him into competition right <laughs> all right i get some looks 
<laughs> yeah, well, I'm trying to remember if there's anything in the law that says an eight-year-old can't actually brew. This is like one of those airbud situations. There's nothing in the rule that says a dog can't play basketball. Yeah, hey, you know, and that's actually it's truthful because we we had that as like a a lot of topics amongst um, the city when we were first going for our homebrew license. We had only had one other store, and people asked the questions like all the time of like. How does this promote getting um, underage drinking and whatnot? You know, mm-hmm. I said, you know, nothing I sell, I don't sell any alcohol. Uh, so technically, I, I don't, don't, I guess I don't have uh, any reason I couldn't sell this product. But I said, at the same time, we, I have morals. I'm not going to sell beer kits to children. Like, we have to, just because I can doesn't mean I don't, that I'm going to. And so that was a, a little bit of a conversation for a little while. Um, but we got past it fairly quickly because it just came down to it. Like, kids are smart. They're smart enough to know that they can go to the grocery store and buy orange juice and bread yeast and do this if they really want to. So if that's the name of the game. Uh, undersung history fact of craft brewing. Sierra Nevada got their start because Ken Grossman was buying supplies from my local homebrew shop while still in high school and learning how to brew. And that's awesome. You know, that's like, it, again, it's, it's a really cool skill, especially when you think about where he is now, like Sierra Nevada, when you're talking about this guy in high school, just messing around with fermentation. And now is one of the most successful craft breweries in the world. Yeah. And, and of course, I'm fairly certain that, that we can all, agree that he was playing around with it in high school, just to understand the mechanics of fermentation, the possibilities and not because he was making beer. (laughs) Exactly. He made that stuff and dumped it all down the drain. I'm sorry, mother. I could not tell a lie. I made beer, but I did not drink it. (laughs) Oh yes. By the way, if you didn't realize by listening to this podcast, I'm a dork. All right. So, so yeah, where we were, where we were just talking. So yeah, basically, so that's how I ended up getting into the game. So I had opened the store in uh, 2016. We're brewing, um, brought the Oak Infusion Spirals in because it's actually really funny. Our local homebrew club, uh, Cloudy Town Brewers, used to host a fairly decent size um, homebrew competition, and my very first experience with the Infusion Spirals was. At, we got a bunch of them from the barrel mill as prizes. So we just put in a request for prizes. Those They sent them to us. Um, I got like a best in show for a mead and that was one of the prizes that they had. So I picked it and I took a bunch of infusion spirals, started messing with them. And then like, I think probably a month later, reached out, started ordering them through LD Carlson, got them into the store. Um, like completely separate relationships not realizing that the two were the same i used to have a a customer coming into the restaurant that i worked at and i got to know him fairly well so i'm talking to him all the time and i knew he sold spirals and he had mentioned to me where he worked a couple of times so one day he walks in the store just to say what's up he sees those infusion spirals hanging on the shelf and he goes oh where'd you get those guys and i told him i order them through ld carlson he goes ah you know those are my product right and i'm like what do you mean he's like that's the problem that my family makes so we get to chit-chatting before you know it now i'm buying direct from them sorry ld i've had the inside scoop from the beginning 
but uh, I was buying them direct, and then he would always come in from time to time. We'd homebrew together, uh, and uh, at one point, he was like, hey, you should really come work for the company and sell these infusion spirals. Uh, you dove right into them, and you like have now started messing with them so much that you know more than anybody around here. You'd be a good fit. Uh, fast forward, like two years later, uh, they finally got it together and made a position to sell the infusion spirals and offered me a job after I had closed the store. So I closed the store in March of 2020. And I started working for the barrel mill in uh, March of 2022, so last year. Nice. And now you're running around getting people hooked on wood. Yep, getting them as excited about it as I am. You had mentioned previously when, uh, when we were talking that, okay, so uh, premium barrels. And I think what it's like you guys are doing multiple sizes all the way down to like five gallons and all the way up to, what, 60? I think. Uh, so we go from a two and a half up to a 53. Oh. Yeah. So we don't technically make a wine barrel. Um, <laughs> we technically stop at a, a bourbon barrel. We do sell to some wine producers. They'll call and order a uh, American oak barrel um, toasted and we'll do those. But most winemakers want their French oak 59 gallon barrels. That's not our, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. That, and a whole different scale. Exactly. So yeah, we go down to a two and a half and up to a 53. So yeah, twos, two and a half, fives, tens, fifteens, thirties, and 53 gallon barrels. And a partridge in a pear tree. Exactly. And then we also actually have a crazy like display oak division. So you go into like a retail store, a bar or a restaurant or like anything and you see like all those like barrels that they have candy stacked in or mm-hmm. different types of retail. We have another division that makes all that as well. Of course, but I don't know why, I'd, why I wouldn't have thought of that. But yeah, of course, that makes sense. Yep. Granted, I mean, like I've got in front of me a couple of the, the spirals and we'll talk about those in a second. Is it possible for homebrewers to buy the, uh, the full size barrels or the, you know, the two and a half, the fives, the tens or whatever is practical for them? Yeah, absolutely it is. So we we sell the five-gallon barrels right now to a couple um, retailers that resell those to the homebrew market. I want to say um, it's like Rocky Mountain Rocky Mountain Barrel Supplies uh, sells our, resells our barrels. I think they do the fives and the tens. Um, and then you can even just call us direct to buy barrels. Um, we don't have a minimum quantity for barrel purchase so as long as you're cool with paying the price and the shipping we'll ship a barrel to anyone um based on availability normally the two and a half gallon barrels and the five gallon barrels are readily available so for most home brewers i'm thinking that's probably the the sizing that they would be in mm-hmm. um but if they wanted to order tens or largers they could totally do that it would probably just be a couple weeks of a lead time uh, maybe a little longer to get it to them. And so if I wanted to just put a price point mentally in my head, as we're talking right now, because I know prices are changing around on everything. Like if I wanted to get a five gallon barrel minus the shipping, uh, how much would that be? Uh, right now, five gallon barrels are one ninety five. Okay. I mean, that's fairly reasonable. Yep. one ninety five on a five gallon 
140 on a two and a half. Uh, and they're both uh, 16, 16 or 20 for the cradle. So if you need a cradle for it, which most people would, then uh, you're looking at another 16 or 20. And then you can kit those things out like by adding a spigot to them if you want. Um, and then when you order them direct, you can even do like custom uh, laser logos on them or anything like that. Nice. Now, now, of course, that you mentioned spigot on it, then now I want a wooden wooden tankard. So then, you complete my full Hobbit experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Like on those two and a half gallon barrels, we even have we've got some some people will buy those, and we offer it in a wax lined version. Mm-hmm. So they'll do a wax lined two and a half gallon barrel, and then put a spigot on that, and essentially they'll use uh, our smaller bottle spiral inside that two and a half gallon barrel that's lined so instead of using the barrel itself they're using the infusion spiral to age the beer but then they can just go over and over and over and over again and not ever have to worry about that barrel leaking or going neutral or anything like that so for a lot of home brewers they kind of like that um depending on what you're doing with it because obviously once you put that wax liner in there then you're stopping um any oz uh what is it, the osmotic transfer that would happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that's going to shut down after you wax line it. So you're, you're thinking of a different vessel at that point in time once you do that to it. Well, I mean, it's exactly like how kegs used to be. I mean, what were kegs in the past? They were barrels that were pitch lined or wax lined. So, yeah, I mean, exactly makes perfect sense. But now, of course, now I have a dream in my head of having a little barrel on my bar with a spigot. And damn it. All right. We I'll, can make it happen. Yeah, I like that idea. All right, so you, you do have barrels, but I think the, the big one, the one that's more practical for a lot of homebrewers, are the, the spirals that you referred to. Now, Absolutely. Wh- when I first started coming up in homebrewing and people were talking about oak alternatives, because, I mean, to be frank, barrels are cool, but barrels are also a giant pain in the butt because uh, they have a lot of maintenance things that you have to do and a lot of care that happens. And so for, I think, a lot of homebrewers, a barrel may not necessarily be – where they want to be unless they're absolutely obsessed with having barrel aged beer. And so th- people have made oak alternatives. Absolutely. And and there's several good oak alternatives on the market. Um, we happen to think the infusion spirals are one of the best ones on the market. Um, and that basically because of the way they do the continuous spiral cut on that, you have the most surface area that you're going to get per, per gallon. Um, when you're using those, uh, and then also the different grain exposures, because the way it's cut, you've got end grain exposure, you have some cross grain exposure. Um, and then you also have like, just like the different, um, variations of thickness from like the fin to the middle of the fin gives you a different rate of infusion and transfer. So you get a very complex, uh, flavor addition uh, aroma addition and then the speed at which this happens is incredible because of the infusion spiral and the consistency that I think above anything else um, if I sell you uh, uh, infusion spiral today and then sell you that exact type of infusion spiral three years from now you know that one spiral will be one spiral then right well and I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it, and it's definitely, definitely a lot different than when I started. It was oak beans, right? Everybody had oak beans uh, that they, mm-hmm. they would sell you. This looks like somebody went and took a dowel and turned it into a Hasselback potato. Pretty much. Yep. 
Uh, for anybody who doesn't know what a Hasselback potato is, go look it up and then go make one because you'll love it. Uh, <laughs> it's like the perfect sort of potato. Because, yeah, I, I, as I'm looking, I've got a pair of American oak toasted spirals here. And, yeah, it, it really is like somebody went in like a nice thick dowel and then just carved out a groove in the middle of it. There's still that there's still that center core and just smelling it. I mean, the the smell just coming off the fresh spiral, and sorry, everybody just had to hear me inhale. Hmm. It's like vanilla and pipe tobacco and leather and, yeah. uh, oddly enough, like cinnamon and some sandalwood along with the oak. Yeah, and you know, we've got, so this is the other part that's r- really fun with the alternatives, and especially our alternatives, because it's not a barrel we get to play with whatever species we want. So not only do we have your classic American French oak when it comes to that fusion spiral, we've got several different varieties. So like right now we've got Amberana, um, Aspen, Cedar, Sugar Maple, um, and Cypress. Uh, and when I said cedar, I meant to say Spanish cedar. Right. And, and those are all different varietals with all, that'll all bring their own um, characteristics and different flavor notes to um, the beverage, whichever whether it's a spirit or beer that you're putting it into. Um, and then the really fun part about that is then we can offer those at several different toast levels from light all the way up to a heavy toast. And then in the American oak, we do a charred infusion spiral as well. So you can mimic your bourbon barrel. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about that because I mean, I think when we talk about adding wood to a beer, you know, there's all the obvious things that people will think about, like, those flavors I just talked about, the vanilla, the leather, uh, the actual wood tones to it. But toasting is kind of a big undersung aspect of this because it's not like you just go out and hack off a piece of tree and chuck it in your fermenter and you're done. Exactly. What does toasting add to the beer and or to, to the the impact of the oak? And like walk me through the different levels. I think it's what, like one through five or something? Um, yeah, so on, when you get to charring, usually the charring they call, uh, level one to five. And then traditionally, when you're talking about the toasted, it's either light, medium, medium plus, or heavy for the toasting. And then depending on what your application is, you would choose whether you're using the charred or toasted or a combination of both. So what you're going to get, like what you said, if you were to just go cut a limb off a tree, and let's say peel the bark off and get it going, you pitch a piece of raw wood in there. It's going to have some impact on um, that beer, but at that point, you may not necessarily get a pleasant um, impact, right? You're going to get some oak character, but it's just, the way we consider it is it's just like a spice. So think about the spices in your spice cabinet. Um, When they're sitting around, you add a little bit of heat to those, right? So you toast those spices, they become more aromatic. Um, It brings out more of the oils. It develops more of the sugars. That heat has an actual chemical reaction with the compounds in the wood that actually changes some of the compounds to create the vanillins and help um, soften the tannins. And it also will create all those other flavors that you're getting out of the wood. So depending on how much heat you add and the length of time that the heat is on that wood, that will develop those flavors more and more. Um, and then it gives you the option that you can kind of use a mix of the different toast levels and char levels to really get a really well-rounded beverage, um, like what you were asking about what it adds. So you brought the obvious items. So you're going to get the tannins out of the wood. 
you're going to get the vanilla. And so you're going to get this uh, vanilla flavor. Our oak, um, from the regions we pull it out of, we usually try to stick pretty close to our cooperage. Um, so it's like northern white oak, tends to have like a tighter grain. So we get a lot of coconut uh, out of our, our oak. So when you're talking about flavors that it's going to add to um, a beer, you can expect some vanilla. You can expect coconut you can expect to see even like a little toffee in there um i like to kind of describe it as like a, a pipe tobacco um type of flavor like the way it smells uh so you get all that complexity from the different toast levels or charred levels and then depending on how much you toast or char and at what height it will change those flavors or it will enhance them more and more um, and then that, in the end, helps your beer with mouthfeel, flavor, helps with the head retention even. Um, so you get like a much more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you get a lot more depth and character on a beer that's been aged on wood. When we were talking before, you know, I mean, you said, hey, you can do a lot of different woods in the spirals because you, there's a different impact and you don't have to construct a whole barrel. Tell me what's different about the wood character I get, or the the overall impact, I should say, of using a barrel versus using something like a spiral. There's, there's pluses and minuses depending on the application to a barrel, right? So if let's say you're making a bourbon or a wine, you put your, your product into a barrel, that barrel is going to give you the oak flavor. So everything I just explained that that spiral can give you, all that tannins, vanillins, the coconut, you're going to get all that. But what you're also going to get from a barrel is the microoxidation, um, like the exchange of air coming in and out of that barrel. Because the barrel is still going to breathe. You're also going to get uh, from the barrel a certain level of uh, evaporation. And then when the temperature changes happen, that pulls the spirit or whatever's in the barrel into the uh, pores of the barrel and then pushes it them out, pushes them out. So all that pressure changing all that stuff together actually gives you a much more complex flavor. So what we always try to tell people is the infusion spiral is going to get you very close, but on a barrel, there's a few more things that you get out of a barrel that you're not going to get out of the spiral that help build that character and will actually develop the same flavors more. Now, how I said that can be a negative, when you're talking beers, that microoxidation thing doesn't lend well to most beers. There's a handful of beers that, that, that can stand up to it, um, but traditionally you didn't see a lot of barrel-aged lagers, uh, pale ales, anything hoppy, because most of the time the oxygen doesn't lend any favor to the flavor on that stuff. That's where your spiral comes in, because now you can still be on oak, but in an, uh, an oxygen-void environment. You don't have to worry about the, the negative side of the oxidation from the barrel. Again, reminder, when we're talking about barrel aging in that sense, we're talking about like open barrels, the ones that haven't been lined, right? Because again, we were talking, you would have had loggers in, in lined oak barrels back before they made aluminum kegs and metal kegs. Correct. Exactly. We're talking about a barrel that can still exchange air. It's still open to the environment and the elements. Um, it might still be leaking some of your product out. So it's still uh, also suspect or subject, I should say, not suspect, but subject to um, tainting, infection, you know, just being in a barrel 
uh, in the environment, you're sub- that's one of the downsides or plus sides, depending on what you're making. Because obviously, if you're making a wild fermented or a sour beer, you may want that um, that characteristic. But um, again, in most applications, that's something that would be looked at as a negative. Right. And so, barrel, we get the wood character, we get your toaster charring uh, character we get whatever's previously resided in the barrel, right? You know, cause obviously okay. you, you go to just about every craft brewery out there and they have some barrel sitting over in a corner somewhere that was a bourbon barrel that has a stout in it. Exactly. Say, that brings up a really good thing. Like as we're talking about the barrels, <laughs> something I skipped over the length of time, right? So that's the other side of a barrel that could be looked at as an exit. When you're barrel aging something to get the full character out of a barrel, you are going to have to dedicate quite a bit more time. So you have a time investment in that product now. You've got all that money that's sitting there for a while. Um, most beers that are barrel-aged, I think typically anywhere from six months to 18 months, with like that nine to 18 months, I think, being more of the average. Um, or I should say nine, nine to 12 months being more of the average. When you're talking about an infusion spiral, you're going to full extraction off of a few, uh, the infusion spiral in eight weeks. Most breweries tend to find that after 10 to 15 days, they've gotten what they wanted. And then if what you're after is that bourbon barrel, remember, that's why we call them an infusion spiral. We can actually take whatever bourbon of your choice, get it into that spiral, and then put it into your cell or whichever beer you're making and mimic that same effect of the bourbon barrel minus the microoxidation. But again, like I said, might be a plus on the beer side and you may end up with a better product with the lack of microoxidation. Do I understand correctly? Like, so you're talking, you know, nine to 12 months in order to age a, a beer in a barrel, but that's, that's when you're in like a full size barrel from what I understand. Like if you're, if you're going to like say that two and a half, five gallon barrel, the surface ratio changes. Yeah. So it's faster when you're in a smaller barrel, but still not as fast as necessarily the spiral. Right. Exactly. So yeah, typically, um, for beer, I think we usually, or or for most, most liquids, we actually would say if you're in the 30 and 53 gallon barrel, um, for you to get the full uh, effect of that barrel, um, on a beer, you're, you're talking that nine to 18 month range, right? Um, when you get smaller than 30, so down to 15 gallons, uh, then they usually say about a month per gallon is what they would expect for you to get the full uh, effect from the barrel. So if you're using a two and a half gallon barrel as a, as a home brewer, two and a half months, so 10 weeks, and back to like what I was saying, that's that spiral, you're still talking 10 to 15 days, so half half the time. Yeah, and again, that all comes down to surface uh, surface to area ratio, right? You know, exactly right. It's um, surface area of the barrel to volume of liquid ratio. Yeah, and we mentioned infusion because one of the things I always used to do when I had oak beans around, and I don't have them anymore, but because uh, I used them a couple of years ago, but I used to have oak beans that had been sitting in bourbon for about, I think, by the time I used them, eighteen years. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. So infused. Yeah, very much so. Where the bourbon started and where the wood started, no one could tell. Exactly. And so, yeah, the infusion spiral works 
I would say better than the beans even, but it depended on exactly what you want. The way we usually recommend using it is you would soak that infusion spiral on only enough of whatever spirit you wanted to actually absorb into the spiral, right? Because if you leave liquid behind, you're leaving some of the spiral behind. So if you want to get all of the spiral into the beverage you're making, um, then I would, we would normally just do just a minimal amount of spirit so that way we can get that spiral fully saturated and then we would add it into our beer. And so we've got people that do, uh, bourbon, uh, infused infusion spirals. We've got a few guys that are doing, um, like sherry, um, red wine, white wine, anything you can think of. You essentially can cut out a lot of time. If you're talking about, oh, now you've got these beers that were a bourbon barrel that was a stout that went back to red wine and then back to a stout. We can easily do that by just soaking a spiral in red wine, soaking a spiral in bourbon, put both spirals into your beer. Now you've got a red wine bourbon barrel stout. And as I look at these spirals, right, so I mean, what these spirals look to be like eight inches long, thereabouts? Yeah, you're using the, uh, you're looking at the carboy packs, I believe, right now. Yep. So, yeah, that's an eight-inch long, one-inch diameter spiral. Yeah. By the way, I want everybody to know that I did that by eyeball. No tape measures or rulers involved. Pretty good. Yes. Go team. And when I look at these, and as you're saying, okay, you want to minimize the amount of uh, spirit that you're adding, these almost look like I would just toss them in like a gallon Ziploc bag and, and fill them, uh, fill that up with enough spirit to cover and then let that soak. Yep. So yeah, normally what I would do is your Ziploc bag. Um, yeah, it'd probably have to be a gallon just because of the size. Maybe a quart might work diagonally. But when I put the spirits in, I try to make the area around the spirit as small, around the spiral as small as I can. Mm-hmm. And then when I add in the spirits, I, I cover half the height of the spiral okay. and then flip it over. And what you'll find is that spiral, if you're doing something like that, it's going to pull in pretty much every last bit of what's there mm-hmm. and you're going to have a completely saturated spiral. And then when you add that to your beer, what you're getting is the full effect of the, the wood, the oak itself, as well as all of the spirit that you use. We do have some people, they want their bourbon stout to be a little hotter so mm-hmm. they don't mind having a little excess uh, bourbon there because they just dump it all in anyway, right? They're like, oh, I didn't mind having a little dish with extra bourbon because I poured it all in there. So I still got all the wood character because um, we poured it all into the beer. Well, and sometimes it could also be wood spiral for the beer, bourbon for the brewer. Exactly. 100%. <laughs> About how long would I have to let that infuse? Um, 48 hours. Oh, okay. That's... That, that that's a hell of a lot quicker than I was thinking. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It absorbs very quickly. When I do it at home, I will put it in. I'll put it in that bag or I use like a little, I have essentially like a test tube mm-hmm. is kind of what it is. And I just fill it up, put the cork in it, and I lay it on its side. And then the next day or in the morning when I wake up, I just flip it over and let it soak on the other side. And then usually by that night, it's fully pulled everything in. Uh, years ago, in uh, one of the homebrew cons, there was a study that they did where they showed if you barrel aged a beer, like in a fresh bourbon barrel, right? 
let's say you gained somewhere, I think like it was a, a full percent or more of alcohol. Uh, just from the what was coming out of the wood, and I don't think you'll get that much out of this little bit of wood, but you'll you'll still pick up some percentage points from the the bourbon that you had in there, or rum, or tequila, or whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. And so, looking at the packaging here, it says each of these sticks is good for three gallons for I guess sort of like a nominal level of oakiness. Like if I were to use one of those sticks in three gallons, like and say I was on it for fifteen days, as we were just talking about. How oaky should I expect this to be? So if you're, let's say we're using just your standard American oak, yep. let's go with a medium or medium plus dose, uh, toast. Mm-hmm. After 15 days, you're, it, it's a, a definite presence. Like, you know, you're drinking oak. You're going to be picking up the notes of coconut. Um, you're going to be picking up the vanilla. You're going to be picking up, um, a little bit of that toffee. So it's going to be, uh, not, overpowering by any means but the presence will be very recognizable it won't be like what is this that i'm tasting you'll know that that's what you're tasting so after 15 days we're not talking subtle we're we're in your face but not chewing on a stick of wood yeah and i wouldn't even say it's it's like in between subtle and in your face it would be not aggressive but um assertive like yeah maybe assertive yeah you know it's just there's no confusion of what you're tasting you know it's there but it's pleasant to put it into kind of a chefy chefy world you know you're not saying they go is that a soup son of cherville i taste yeah 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 no that's exactly it you're just thinking to yourself is this no there's no is this it's that's vanilla that's caramel that's coconut where is that coming from because it's definitely in this beer and then if I let it continue to sit, I'll pick up even more intense characters and maybe even some tannins eventually. And yeah, yep, exactly. And then at that point in time, this is where, so the, the, the timeline that we put on those packages are really a very general, and we really encourage people to experiment with these yep. because different alcohol levels are going to pull at a different rate. Um, depending on the temperature and the humidity of exactly where you're at. And in, unless you're in, um, like you state, like you said, your stainless steel and your glass, that's not going to have as big of an effect, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're doing a lager per se, where it's cold, that temperature is going to slow it down a little bit, but mm-hmm. not much. Um, if you're doing like, uh, something on like a Kavikis where you can ferment or that beer is fine at 80 degrees or whatever, and you're sitting there and it's secondary and it was still sitting in that 80 degree range, it's going to pull off a little bit faster. So we recommend tasting always. But what ends up happening is if you leave it on there too long, it'll start to kind of develop like a rush. It'll become harsh. It's a little bit more rough. That's where the tannins start to take over. And I almost think it muddles the flavors. They start to become um, like noise. Right. Almost. Well, that's like a, in one of my talks, I talk about uh, people using too many ingredients. Now the beer all suddenly tastes brown. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's that same thing is where you get very muddled. And then also tannins, you know, while tannin is a good thing in wine because it helps, you know, provide a break. Not good for most beers. Yeah, most beers I don't think do very well with a tannin character. <laughs> right. And essentially what you're doing is the longer you leave it in there, the more of it you're stripping off. And typically what I tend to do is um let's say if I'm doing a bourbon barrel aged stout, 
and I'm using the American Oak Charred Spiral. I might go my 10 to 15 days and then I'll pull that spiral out and then I'll wait even like another up to two weeks uh, before I'm ready for that beer. And that's because even though I've pulled that wood out of there, the flavors are still really blending together and the character is still developing at that point in time. And uh, what you end up with is a much more rounded flavor and it doesn't taste like compartmentalized. It tastes like more of a, a composed, uh, it has more composure. Everything blends together so much better with that little extra time. Now, of course, given that homebrewers are um, notoriously frugal, one question that I can immediately see somebody asking me is, okay, hey, so I put this thing into my beer for 15 days. It seems like a waste for me to just throw it out. Can I reuse this? Now, this is where the frugal comes in to bite you to tell you the same thing I tell commercial brewers. You could reuse it if you want with two things in mind. Most of the flavor is already gone because it, it front loads, right? It's going to pull out most of everything that it has to offer within that first, like, three to five days that you're on it. Um, so even if you were to only use it for one week, of the eight weeks, that one week version is going to have way more flavor than the seven week uh, version, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing is if you pick up some type of infection in between swapping that spiral from one to the next and you have to dump that whole second beer, then you really didn't save anything. So infusion spirals were really, in, they were made to be a single use, but we do have users that are they're brewing on a, a, a continuous schedule. So it's like I pull it out of one and drop it directly into the next one. Uh, we highly discourage like pulling it out of one and putting it in a bag and letting it sit around until it's dry again or even for a couple of days. If you're going to try and reuse it, you really want to be mindful and pull it from one, drop it directly into the next one um, and go. So, yeah, if you if you wanted to, you could reuse it, but we don't recommend it. Right. And actually, you just brought up a very good point about the infection risk. The other thing that you get a lot of homebrewers who are very notoriously frugal, then you get the other set of homebrewers who are also notoriously um, uh, germaphobic in a way. If I'm not infusing these with bourbon and like some sort of high proof spirit, which I'm going to you know, hope is going to kill off a lot of stuff. Before I were to use these, if I was just going to use them raw or not raw, but as they come packaged, um, do I have to do anything in order to make sure that they're not going to introduce some sort of critter to my beer? Nope. Those packages, you should be able to open it and pitch it in. Um, the current packaging that it's in right now, we just tell people, you know, examine it, make sure it doesn't have any like apparent pierces or anything like that. But one of the things that's coming up with our, uh, re I don't want to call it a rebrand, but we're kind of doing a little bit of updates to uh, the product right now. We're going to do some new packaging, but we want to go to a uh, like a freshness guarantee or a quality uh, assurance packaging. So we are going to switch them um, hopefully early next year to a package that's like tamper evident. So it would it will most likely be like a vacuum sealed pack. Mm -hmm. So you'll know like when that thing comes to you, as long as the vacuum's not broken you should be able to pitch it in and have zero concerns. But yeah, right now our process is essentially they go through the oven on the toasting process. And then as soon as they're cool enough to get packaged, they get packaged. Mm -hmm. So 
So also what you're telling me is that now that I've opened the package to go stick my nose in there and go, <laughs> smell that, uh, I'm going to have to infuse these. <laughs> I, I would infuse those. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Things yeah. you learn, people. Yep. Or if you like, let's say you have a beer style that you're not like, you don't want it to have as intense of a flavor, um, of, of oak or that oak presence, you could essentially boil some water mm-hmm. and throw that spiral into that boiling water for a short amount of time, like just quickly, just enough to sanitize it and then put it into the beer. But in mind that you're washing some of what that wood has to offer out. So when you say quickly, are we talking like 30 seconds, five minutes, 10 minutes? I'm, I'm thinking maybe 60 seconds. Right. Yeah. All right. There you go. So lesson learned, people. Don't sniff your wood before you're wanting to use it. Sniff it right before you put it into the uh, beer. <laughs> you open it. You, you smell the packaging. That's what you do. There you go. Although I will say, it smells great. and It, it really does remind me of... Um, was it Levitt and Sons in Cambridge, the tobacconist walking in there and smelling all the pipe tobacco? Yep. So now what people get themselves, the one that people really get them trouble, themselves in trouble with the sniffing is uh, the Amberana because Amberana has a really, really delicious smell. Like it smells like cinnamon toast crunch. And when you put it into a beer, the beer smells like cinnamon toast crunch and it's so awesome. And when people get it, like there's, smelling the package like before they even open it and they're just like is that coming from this and their first instinct is the one want to rip it open and stick their nose in there but like that's where you get yourself in trouble and it is that by far my favorite of all of the species we have right now is the amberana that's like really hot i think a lot of people are going to start playing around with it you're going to probably see quite a few like holiday beers coming out from breweries this season uh, involving amberana i think why, yes, we've gone to exotic lands, discovered new exotic places, found new exotic woods so that we can flavor our beer and make it taste like Cinnamon Toast Crunch. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, so now, now that we've talked about the, the various wood types and the spirals, we have to talk about how people should be, not how they should, but how people can be using these uh, and like various things they can do. I think the the super obvious one is, of course, Make an imperial stout and flavor it with wood, because mm-hmm. I'm fairly certain you could find that in every zip code known to mankind right now. <laughs> yeah, your stouts, porters, barley wines, those are going to be really, really on the top of what people are doing with wood. Um, and then you're going to start seeing um, some of like the sours that start to come in on that. Like for us, we've been doing um in our local area we've got some breweries that are doing uh, like flanders red um with that we had uh a brewery that did type of a lambic style beer and then aged it on french oak which was really interesting and fun it actually really good i hope they make it again this year um so those have been like i don't even know if i would say that's in the unique i still think that's in the the normal parameter mm-hmm now, what has been some of the unusual things that people have been starting to do and had really good success with is going to be, uh, we've got one brewery that's doing a sugar maple lager right now. Um, and if they do it during the summertime and he was just telling me the other day, like it's the best seller because all of a sudden people walk in 
and they're looking around because they swear there's some breakfast buffet somewhere because you can smell that maple like syrup type smell in the air uh, on like a warm day. <clears throat> and here it is, is all these guys are just drinking sugar maple lager. So that's been very, very popular on that. Um, down in Florida, they've got a couple uh, lagers out. There's a brewery doing a beer called, I think it's Paper in the Wood, and it's a, a, a wood-rested lager. There's a Spanish cedar pale ale on the market mm-hmm. um, right now that's very good. Um, that's in the u- unique side of things because you don't see it with hops very often, wooden hops. I mean, barrels and hops don't go well together because hops usually don't lend well to oxidation, right? So That does remind me way back in the day, and it's no longer around because I think they shut down the, the brewery, but uh, Portland Beer Company or Portland Brewing, they used to have Woodstock IPA. They had an elephant on the label, you know, played into the whole, you know, you ship the beer around the world to India, the hops in order to survive the journey thing. And, oh, I feel like I remember that label. Yeah, and that that was barrel, or that was bar- wood infused at, at the very least. So there, yeah, have, and- there have been there have been wood infused IPAs in the past. Sometimes it works. <laughs> yep. And then obviously we've, I shouldn't say obviously, but some, some more of the other things like in that same fermentation category, not necessarily beer. We've got quite a few mead, um, makers right now that are getting into using the infusion spirals, um, for doing some just, uh, classic dry meads. So getting a little more, uh, closer to a wine mm-hmm. or to a traditional wine, I should say, uh, with those. Um, let me think what else has been new. I just did an Amberana Porter. Um, that was pretty fun, but I think that falls into that same stout barley wine category. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's been new? Well, I know the one I've seen on the market and I don't think they are actually using spirals or doing any real infusion that made me laugh was wood, uh, wood infused hard seltzer. Oh, I have not seen that yet. But so what's funny is when I, I was at a trade show and I ran into a guy um, that worked for a basically just like a malt beverage manufacturer. They just mm-hmm. made base malt specifically for the the seltzer market um, and RTD market. And I was kind of chit chatting to him about like how we could maybe get wood into that that whole realm and like in all of the things we could come up with, I thought of nothing that seemed like it would taste good as far as a seltzer on wood. Um, so we had a good conversation and we parted away as like, like maybe someday, you know, but that's interesting. I don't, I would like to see that because I'm very curious as to how that worked out. Well, cause I think what they're, tr- the ones I've seen, I think what they're trying to lean into is the idea of a sort of a, a faux bourbon highball. Yeah. Okay. And that, that was the idea. I think, or I, I believe that was the inspiration. Um, I have not had them, but I, I did see them. <laughs> I mean, look, let's face it. People are going to try every combination out there just, just to make sure that they haven't missed something. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's to me, my, fa- that's my favorite part about home brewing, right? Is because I'm not like held to any accountability from anybody about it having to make money. Um, I, I only have to be worried about my budget, I guess, on my, like, I want to be able to drink what it is that I make. So I don't want it to be so awful that I can't drink it. Mm-hmm. But th- that's my favorite part is I can experiment. And as long as it's chokeable, 
if I can choke it down, then I might consider it as a win. To that point, though, I mean, one of the nice things with the Oak alternatives, like the spiral here, is you don't have to commit to all the rigmarole of creating a a full barrel because you, have, you want the barrel to be full. You know, a full barrel-sized batch of something. You, know, you could literally take off and put like a three-gallon keg of stuff in there and throw one of the sticks and let it age and go do do something else with the other portions. So that is kind yeah, of also absolutely. another thing. And I've even gone as far as taking one of those eight-inch sticks and cutting it into three pieces because mm-hmm. one stick's supposed to be good for three gallons, right? Yep. And I just drop it into a gallon jug and do a one-gallon fermentation batch, uh, or not fermentation, but rest. So I can just kind of see what happens with a wood style that I am not familiar with. Um, Spanish cedar, in fact, is one that I like to do one-gallon tests with, because Spanish cedar is very aggressive. Um, I would say if I get a call from someone, or if I run across somebody, and they start going into saying that they had a bad experience with the infusion spiral, I immediately asked, was it the Spanish cedar? Because that's 98% of the time the culprit, and 100% of the time it's because they left it in too long. Because like when I was saying to you before, with most of those infusion spirals, 10 to 15 days is what we typically find is the sweet spot. Um, Infusion spirals, First, of Spanish cedar and even the Amberana, mm-hmm. I'm talking like two days oh. is what most typical, like for a pleasant flavor, two days. After that, uh, Spanish cedar is is very aggressive and is will overpower any other flavor um, that you would put into a beer um, or any other spirit at that. So that's most of the time where we run an issue with that beer. I think the only time I've had Spanish cedar in a beer was uh, <clears throat> uh, Cigar City used to, I don't know if they still make it, but they, they used to make a Spanish cedar infused version of Highlight, their IPA. Yeah, and, had, and they still do. That's okay. actually a really good seller for them. I, so I grew up in Florida, so I'm very familiar with Cigar City. I grew up about an hour away uh, from that brewery, from the original one. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, yeah, that beer comes out, They it's comes out in a variety pack, a uh, variety 12 pack of Highlight. Um, and it also, they sell that one on its own just as a, I think it's a six pack, mm-hmm. but they still get a lot of traction on that Spanish cedar. Whenever I'm down there, I'm drinking it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think my favorite is the white oak. Um, yep. but yeah, but it, I also always laugh because if I remember correctly, Spanish cedar is not a true cedar either. Which is uh, no, <laughs> it is not. It is not a true cedar. You are correct. Um, and yeah, the white oak is really good. And then the last time I was down there, they actually had a new version where it was like a peach white oak. Um, that was really interesting. I still like the plain white oak better, but the peach one was something different. It's fun. I like those guys because they're always messing around with uh, new flavors. Well, they they have enough traffic and enough capacity to always be able to pull off something experimental. So yeah, all right. So we we got the we got the we got our rules for reuse. We got some ideas for how to use this. And we got some ideas for how to infuse. Any other thoughts that people should have about oak, oak alternatives, the the spirals, whatever's on your brain? Um, I mean, honestly, I'd like people to just remember that oak and beer, 
the, the presence of oak and beer has been around for a long time. And a lot of people forget that almost every beer style in existence at one point in time had some type of wood character. Not necessarily that it was done on purpose, but I feel like there's a lot of, of beer styles now that the popularity of has fallen off. And I would say that they probably did because that beer style maybe needed um, the oak character, right? So I'm, I really want to encourage people. We try to make these things in a, a, a fairly affordable um, product for a home brewer. So again, when you're being budget-minded, it's not going to really hit the bank super hard. I, I encourage people to experiment. Like Any beer style that you think uh, would be terrible on wood, put it on wood. And you might be surprised. We've got a lot of different varieties. You just have to find the wood um, that that makes that beer style work. There you go. Now I want to make a, a wood infused Hellespach. I want to, I'm about to be trying all kinds of crazy. My wife is actually really mad at me right now um, <laughs> because I think I currently own four um, different homebrew systems. And she goes like, well, you can't brew on them all at the same time, which then I reply, yes, I can watch me. Um, <laughs> and then she goes, you don't need them all, which I don't. I should probably get rid of something. But the one that drives her the most crazy, they have a full one barrel brew system. And she's like, you don't need to brew that much beer ever. And I've been <laughs> brewing beer on that thing now. Like, okay, we're going to brew. So that's, uh, that's getting ready to be a lot of experimentation. So I can brew a barrel and then split that in the, like six three gallon batches is probably what I'll do so I can just throw a different piece of wood and nice. just play with that same beer and see what happens. Well, it sounds like after you're done with that, we'll have to have you back on so you can tell us your results. Yeah, we've got, and, and we've got some fun things coming up too. Uh, see, it's a probably definitely want to have us back on. We got a couple of, of pretty cool things that I think homebrewers are going to really like. Um, some new additions, a couple new wood species that we're working on getting in right now that are going to be really fun for the home brewer. And then also we're, we're, I shouldn't let it out of the bag, but we're, ex we're experimenting with pre flavoring. Some of these infusion spirals, let's say it that way. Ah, there we go. Um, so you'd be able to buy them ready to go. Skip the work, make the beer. Exactly. So yeah, we're, we're working on a couple of things. Um, but that's about all we're going to say about it right now. All right. Well, and so, like I said, we'll bring you we'll bring you back in so that uh, you can tell us more about that when when it happens. Just to remind people, uh, you can go uh, Barrel Mill's website is thebarrelmill dot com. Correct. Uh, and you can go find. I, I think you guys even list like where you can go find like from local homebrew shops too, right? So we did, and I'll tell you right. I'll say yes because not depending on when they listen to this episode, it might be back up. We're working on our website right now, so that portion, I believe, may be down currently, but most homebrew stores at this point in time should be carrying that product, and if they're not, you should be telling them that they should be, because it's available to everyone everywhere right now. Is it going through LD Carlson, you said? Yep, LD or BSG. Every homebrew shop in the world should be able to get from one of those two places, and so just ask for a special order. Yeah, absolutely. Even um, if you're uh, if you're in Europe, if you're in Australia, uh, Bevy, which uh, is over there, those guys are involved with the Grainfather. You can get it even in Europe. We've got the infusion spirals available. So awesome sauce. Well, it sounds like we got some more research to do. I'm going to have to go soak some spirals now that I've sniffed them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my last suggestion for everybody, when you're doing these bourbon barrel soaks, everybody wants to run out and buy their most expensive bourbon. What I like to use is a very quality base, right? So Evan Williams, 19 bucks a bottle. It's good to drink it after it's done, but it works really good for um, doing infusion smoke uh, soaks for, for stouts, right? The other one that's one of my favorites is old granddad yeah. because I actually will, it's very cheap. I use it to make like bourbon sauces and cooking at home. And then I'll infuse my spirals on that, infuse my spirals on that. So don't dump a ton of cash on a really expensive bottle. Drink the expensive bottles infuse with something cheap because you're not going to pick that up in the bourbon. What you're looking for or not in the bourbon, but the stout or beer, what you want to really look for is something that's a quality product. Um, but you don't need to buy the crazy name brand. Yeah, no, don't go through, throwing your pappy in there. Yeah, no. And you know, I actually, when I had the homebrew store, I got to do a pappy stout. And this is what brought me to that conclusion originally was it was dumb. It was, it was like, he brought me the infusion spirals. He had already poured it on some pappy. I think he had a bottle of pappy 15. <laughs> um, of course I drank the pappy 15 um, after, after I took the spiral out of it, which I was like, that's nice. Uh, but I would have preferred to just drink the Pappy 15 and dump some, some Evan Williams into the beer. I think the, those bourbon beans I mentioned, uh, that had been aged, that had aged for ever in a dang day. Um, they spent a lot of time on a combination of 10 high and rebel Hill, which if yeah. you know, if you know your bourbons, you know, that's not expensive stuff. Nope. But I mean, I, again, and when you're talking about putting it into a beer, it's going to be fantastic. And there's a lot of bourbons out there on the market that are a very, very good product. And they're just technically a little young. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why they don't have that high dollar on them. But I think uh, when, you, when, you, when you're making a beer and you're just trying to go for the infusion, stay budget-minded. Just pick up a decent quality made 15 to $20 bottle of bourbon which kind of sounds crazy when you think decent quality made, but they are there and then use that. Well, it's the same rule as cooking, right? You know, uh, with wine, right? You know, don't use the expensive wine, but use a wine. You'd still be fine drinking. Exactly. Exactly. That's what you're looking for. 100%. There you go. All right. The barrel get your spirals, get your barrels. If you're so inclined and uh, go make some uh, wood aged beers and tell us what you make. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this talk about barrels and barrel alternatives. And yes, I'm going to have to sanitize those barrel spirals after I'm done sniffing them. So now, what to make? A stout? A barley wine? Triple? Or maybe something a little less conventional? I don't know. If you got ideas, let me know. Again, if you have ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the HA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.